I don't envy the 25-year-olds. We all have the same 365 days to be 21. We just had them at different times. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Tracy Gossel's first passion was medicine. Inspired in part by Star Trek and with the goal of financial independence, she attended medical school and had a successful career as a clinician and trauma doctor before becoming an entrepreneur. Her success as an entrepreneur allowed Tracy to pursue her other passion, silent film. Her love for Douglas Fairbanks Sr. led her to write the book First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks considered by many to be the key biography of the early Hollywood legend. And in 2014, Tracy founded the Film Preservation Society. The goal of the organization is to rescue all 460 plus biograph films directed by D.W. Griffith between 1908 and 1913. We recently spoke with Tracy about her passion for silent film how her career as a physician has informed her work as a film historian, how technology is aiding the work of preservation, and why film preservation is so important. Here is our conversation with Tracy Gossel. Tracy, your career is just so interesting. But before we talk a little bit about the work that you're currently doing with film and preservation, I wanted to talk a little bit about your career before that and your life before that. Where did you grow up? Oh, my God. I grew up all over. My dad was climbing a corporate ladder. So we were in uh, Pennsylvania, Canada, north of Montreal. And I think when I was about going into fifth grade, we moved then to Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts again, Wisconsin. I ended up in Wisconsin uh, my last six months of high school. So then I went to uh, university and medical school in Madison, at the, the state university. So I, I grew up kind of all around the Northeast Coast and landed in the middle of a cornfield. What was it about medicine that appealed to you? First of all, it was very rare, uh, still very difficult in those days to, for a woman to get into medical school. I worked in the admissions office for a couple of summers, and I know that the you know 20 or 30 women who got into our class had a higher GPA by you know, 0.1 than the men that got into the class. So it wasn't a matter of uh, quotas or <laughs> them trying to get us in. They were actually uh, many, many, many medical school interviewers were actively trying to keep us out. You know, why should we give you a slot? You're taking it away from a man. But it, the idea of knowing medicine and practicing medicine, to my mind, um, gave, would give me a level of autonomy um, and hopefully equality that otherwise, for the most part, wasn't available. And so when I was a little girl, I would watch Star Trek. And every time they beamed down to the planet, they had to have the science officer and the doctor. Of course, at the time, I didn't realize it's because those were the contracted actors who, who you know, were the, the uh, co-stars in the series. But I love the fact 
that no matter how far into the future it was, no matter what was happening, you still needed a physician around for uh, medical emergencies. And in fact, that's the specialty, uh, one of the two specialties I boarded in, which is emergency medicine. And that I did down in Chicago at Northwestern University. That's so amazing, though. You say that kind of jokingly, but the reality of it is that Star Trek opened the doors for a lot of women in a lot of different fields for that same reason, right? Oh, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg said, you know, Mom, there's a Black lady on this TV show, and she's not the maid. And, you know, I just, uh, DeForest Kelly, he's in heaven now, but I owe him a debt because uh, that was the role model that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be you know, Captain Kirk bagging all the bosomy aliens. I wanted to be the guy who, or person who was there when somebody was injured. This was clearly something that spoke to you from a very early age. Did you ever consider doing anything else other than medicine? No, no. There was a brief period when I was 10 and I'd watch Perry Mason, you know, and I want to be a lawyer. But no, medicine was pretty much what I was set on from the age of, I'd say, 12. Wow. So you go to school, you go to medical school. I assume that you set up a practice somewhere and you start practicing medicine. But I mean, that's not where you've ended up today. I'm curious about where your passion for film and entertainment started from. Clearly, you were into TV from an early age. Well, the same the same age when I was eleven, I think Lillian Gish's autobiography came out. The movies, Mister Griffith and Me. I apologize for the birds in the background. I've got finches here, um, and uh, I just you know, kids are at a certain impressionable age where things imprint on them and they find their their lifelong interest. Lillian Gish was my gateway drug uh, to silent films. So as a kind of a preteen on all the way through now into my, <laughs> beyond adulthood into my, my dotage years, I had a, um, a great passion and interest in silent film, but I never perceived it as something that I would do as my day job that, you know, the arts, we, we were a good German family. We didn't do the arts. You know, we, we became engineers and scientists and doctors and pharmacists because that those were concrete things you could do to help people. And the arts were the things that you did in the evening and the weekend if, if you wanted. So um, it wasn't until, oh golly, about 10 years ago that I was finally realized I was in a position where I could actually work to fund the salvation of some of this material. And that's been incredibly gratifying. What was it about Lillian Gish and silent film in general that really appealed to you? How can you describe what gets somebody's interest? Certainly, I wasn't able to see the films uh, for a number of years. I would just read about them. But something about those pictures of those young actors, and they were all just young people. You think of Charlie Chaplin at the top of the world. He's 25 years old with that white pancake on their face and those dark coal lining uh, drawn around their eyes. And I say coal, I mean K-O-H-L, not, not a charcoal, but it's kind of like charcoal. And just something about that intrigued me. And also the history of these folks in this kind of pioneering era where uh, nobody respectable 
was making motion pictures. That's where all the people who couldn't get stage work ended up. As I got older and actually had the opportunity to see these films, I realized that you process uh, the experience of a silence film in a different part of your brain than you process uh, a talking film or television or anything with with audio. Uh, The image plus the music is is different than the image plus the pro, you know the words that you hear and process it is far more of a it's, it's almost too strong a word but it, it it can become a transcendent experience with a single person or an audience in that moment with that visual with the music luring you in in one direction or another to laughter to tears or to intrigue and it's a deeper experience than is a talking film and if you look carefully at modern filmmakers who are good you will see almost all of them use extended periods of what i consider to be silent films in their in their movies for example go see saving private ryan you know, from the moment they hit the beach through that whole sequence, you're not hearing words. You're you're seeing images and you're hearing music. After they, uh, the camera is on one of the Ryan boys who's there face down dead on the beach, uh, he cuts to a government office where all these ladies are typing away at the bereavement letters that are going out to the families, you know, grieve to tell you you're your son, Timothy, blah, blah. And he carries it. This whole sequence is a silent film where a woman is typing and she goes, boy, that name seems familiar. And she walks over and she finds an earlier letter to the same mom. And then she walks over to another section and finds yet a third letter to the same mom. And we realize that this mom is about to learn that all of her children but one have been killed he brings there's a brief uh, bit of dialogue so we get that you know the understanding of the narrative and then he's back to a silent film where our mom we've got an elderly woman at the kitchen sink dog on the porch the camera shows us looking out of her kitchen window and up comes a black government car and she goes out to the porch and out of the car comes a senior military officer and a priest and that woman just drops to her knees. She knows what's coming. We, the audience, are on that journey with her and with the lady in the typewriter office. And never in the sequence do we hear words, but we think the thoughts and we feel the feelings and the music and the image combined pull us in a way that uh, if it had just been all narrative, it would not have happened bad film directors just simply put in a music montage you know about every once or twice in a movie there's a whole sequence where it's not dialogue it's some track over them while something's going on i know leslie nielsen and priscilla presley did a fabulous spoof on that in one of those naked gun movies you know good film takes advantage of silence and these original filmmakers in a 20-year period migrated from simply 
filming a static stage performance with the camera not moving and and everybody full figure to the language of film that is essentially what we're using today. We may have CGI instead of practical effects. We have color, we have uh, sound, but everything else about filmmaking was figured out by these early pioneers and they literally created the language of cinema and the the manipulation of space and time and and taking us uh, alternating between the family in distress and the villains trying to break into the house and the the hero trying to get to the family to rescue them and uh, to to alternate to cut between those three people or three sets of of people all in the same time that's something that Dickens did when he wrote but uh, nobody had done it on the stage. I mean, it just was the stage was not the setting for uh, this fluidity that a camera and editing would permit you. And when to bring the camera in closer to the actor, you know, when to film from very far away. They mastered this language and it had just reached its absolute peak of fluency and grace. And then in, you know, sort of one horrible year, it all went away. I argue talkies are just a fad, but, um, you know, I I appear to be in the minority. (laughs) You know, you mentioned that you realized at some point that, you know, silent film and spoken film, they, they use different parts of your mind. When did you kind of realize that? And was there a specific film that you saw? Or was it a group of films that you saw that kind of sparked that for you? It was the advantage of going to medical school. So I knew, you know, the where the Wernicke Center is, you know, where, what part of uh, your left temporal region processes word, what part processes, you know, lets you speak language. Um, Bruce Willis, for example, has an expressive aphasia now. So you could talk to him. He understands what you're saying. He just can't give you an answer in words, which is incredibly frustrating. There are other kinds of centers in your brain where you you receive and understand language. And if you were to have a stroke in that area, then maybe you could say words, but everything that comes into you sounds like garbled nonsense. You just don't process it or understand it. So the more I studied neurology, the more I realized uh, how this coordinated with um, the experience of silent films. And one of the most miserable film experiences you can ever have, even though it's sort of historically important, is watching The Jazz Singer, which is a not very good silent film. It's a third-rate silent film, but it had these sections of of music and talking. And you're in watching The Jazz Singer, you're, you're in the narrative story, and all of a sudden, Al Jolson's there saying, hey, you ain't seen nothing yet, and you're married. And you you make that leap to the talking film, but then when it cuts back to silence uh, and intertitles and music, it's very hard to go back. Um, Even if it had been a really good silent film, you're processing in a different way, and you were in this, this communion with the film, and that communion stops or is different 
once it's a sound film. For example, if you're watching television, even if you're watching, you know, something really well-made like Game of Thrones or something, you, you still are occasionally, you're looking down, you're doing your knitting or you're eating your crackers or you're, um, you know, commenting to your spouse uh, that, that darn Khaleesi is going to fall off her dragon. And you don't do that with a silent film. With the silent film, you have to give it your whole attention or you're going to miss stuff. And people did. People absolutely um, gave it their whole attention. And that's just a different thing. And I'm making it sound very um, elevated and technical. And that's not the way I you know, want you to be thinking of it when you're experiencing a Charlie Chaplin movie for the first time or Buster Keaton, because you try and bring people into silent films through comedy first, because that's the most accessible entryway. And then you you can start uh, layering on the dramas. And once people kind of get past the jump of the different makeup and the different hair, just like you're watching a 1930s film, you know, everybody's got Marcel waves and, and arched high thin eyebrows. Once you kind of just subtract that from your mind uh, and just start seeing these people, it's a, a marvelous, marvelous experience. I can't recommend it enough. I want to come back to this entryway into silent film in a moment, but I wanted to just comment first on this idea because it's not something that I ever would have considered. And I think it might be interesting for others to consider that the fact that you were a medical doctor that was studying, you know, how the brain works and found a correlation to film. It's not something that's like automatic. Like you don't read that and you go, oh yeah, these two things belong together. Well, it's an odd combination, but it also has aided me tremendously as a historian because the other hat I wear is as a biographer of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Um, don't confuse him with Junior. Junior was in talkies. Senior was the great silent swashbuckler, the original Zorro, the original Robin Hood, etc. And knowing your medicine when you're looking at Fairbanks's history or you know, even something as famous and famously misunderstood as the Roscoe Arbuckle murder trial. If you know medicine, you are able to um, recognize what was going on clinically and where people were kind of missing the boat. Or It is a tremendous aid, and I'm always disappointed when historians don't check in with clinicians <laughs> And, and ask them their opinion about this phenomenon or that. James Curtis's recent biography of Buster Keaton, it, which is a phenomenally wonderful book, um, he did uh, check in with me, and I'm, I'm in a footnote there somewhere, about how Virginia Rappé actually did die and what, you know, what was the medical goof up and, you know, can you rupture your bladder with a rape? Um, what are the forces that are profound enough to cause a bladder rupture? You know, only a urologist or a trauma doctor knows that stuff. It's, it's just so much more valid to check in with the toxicologist if it's a poisoning or a suicide attempt or, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning or an emergency physician or a trauma surgeon on these 
on these clinical narratives because they, they make the stories even more interesting. You know, Wallace Reed didn't die trying to withdraw from morphine. He died of endocarditis because he had been shooting up uh, drugs with dirty needles. The truth is um, always, always way more interesting than the constructed narrative that's been built along the way. Isn't that the truth? You mentioned Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And I wanted to ask you about him because you were so fascinated by this gentleman that you wrote an entire book on him. When did you discover his work and what prompted you to write the book? Well, I was 13 years old and read a um, very long article in a magazine called American Heritage by an author by the name of Richard Schickel. And Richard Schickel was a pretty darn sloppy historian, but he could write The Angels Would Sing. Uh, he, it, I was became interested in this man because of how Richard Schickel wrote about him and what he had to say. And, you know, if it were just an actor or a pretty face, you know, an Errol Flynn who does the stunts, that's of no interest to me at all. But if you've got somebody who becomes a producer and, you know, is sort of truly responsible for their body of work, the way Chaplin and Keaton and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks were on top of that, who became a significant business force in the industry as Chaplin and D.W. Griffith and Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford did when they formed United Artists, uh, a distribution company that was owned by uh, the producers. And the fact that this was the co-founder of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who I guess today uh, gave Will Smith the 10-year the uh, boot. But the fact that we care about the Oscars, the fact that we see movies in Technicolor is because Doug Fairbanks saved the Technicolor Corporation in 1926. The fact that we have Batman and Superman, both of those iconic characters were modeled on Doug Fairbanks. Uh, these teenagers who went on to draw the comics, they had their little um, their little cartoon characters. I mean, Superman, Batman, they're, they're big and important in that universe. Uh, but that wide base stance, the knuckles on the hips, the elbows out, all of that is Doug Fairbanks. And that was a direct inspiration. So even the fact that everybody tries to get tan in the summer until Doug came along and was, you know, a nice berry brown, uh, everybody wanted to have light skin so that they looked like they didn't have to work in the fields. And, um, you know, in the 1920s, there became a tanning craze and suddenly it became healthy looking to be tan and to have been outside. And that, again, is, is laid at the feet of Doug Fairbanks. So in the early part of this century, as I was collecting on, on him, and one of the reasons I collected on him is because being largely uh, forgotten, he was a lot more affordable than Chaplin and Keaton. You know, I have equal interest in Pickford and Griffith and Chaplin and all these other very significant artists, but I couldn't afford particularly material that was related to them. Well, Mary Pickford, who, when she married Doug Fairbanks, they formed sort of the, the first great um, Hollywood couple, uh, this sort of iconic romance. After her death and after the death of her last husband, there were 
items that had belonged to her in their household that were being auctioned off, including a great number of the love letters Fairbanks had written to Pickford when each was married to other people and they were having this this grand, uh, dramatic, secret affair that could have, you know, ruined both their careers. And I, you know, they were saying the estimate was pretty low, but when that auction came, there were a whole bunch of dealers who knew the value of this. If you got a love letter from Doug Fairbanks to Mary Pickford, my gosh, you could sell those individual um, letters very high. And I happened to have been post-op, meaning I was the patient uh, for a spine fusion. And one of the reasons I can't work in the ER anymore is I've I've had you know six spine fusions, got more more metal in my back than uh, a robot, and so I was post op, and I was I was on those pain meds. I was pretty dopey. So you know the the auction went on, and the bids kept going up and up. And I thought, well, you know, the kids don't really need to go to college, do they? Well, I don't. And so ultimately, I won the letters, and I'm so glad because they will uh, in time be donated with my death to the Herrick Library, where all of Fairbanks's and Pickford's papers are here in L.A., and they were kind of saved from the dealers and being scattered to the wind. But when I got them and I read them, uh, they told part of the story that had not yet been published in uh, prior biographies, and that got me digging it was an eight-year venture, but it got me digging into um, Doug's life. And of course, the more you the more you dig through primary source material and financial records and court records and things, the more you find the narrative that other people have accepted and you know put into the their biographies in kind of a cut and paste manner. Um, because Hollywood people are great at telling fabulous stories. I mean, they will shape their narrative in a phenomenally interesting way. It just doesn't happen to be the truth. So I found more and more truths. And in the end, I wrote the book. And by golly, it took a very, very, very generous uh, and far more famous and successful than I author by the name of Scott Iman who had written the John Wayne biography and Louis B. Mayer bio and just has a, Cary Grant most recently has, has this long distinguished career at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. He um, rec- read the book and recommended an agent that he thought would work for it. So I got an agent within you know a week and the, a publisher within, I think, three weeks of finishing it, which is kind of unusual. I was very lucky. And I, you know, the the publishing house, uh, small independent by name of Chicago Review Press did a beautiful job with it. And and, uh, it went out into the world in 2015. It was called The First King of Hollywood. When you started doing this research, you know, you have, you've got these letters that, <laughs> you know, you paid a norm and a like for. You start looking at them for your curiosity. When do you start to know that there is a story here that's bigger than just your interest that needs to be shared with the world? The mere fact of having the letters in my hands, I already had, you know, sort of a competitive advantage that no other biography had. I had the words and the thoughts that 
Fairbanks was communicating to this the most important woman and probably the most important person in the industry in, in the first 20 years of the prior century. You know, the contracts to this day are designed and structured the way Mary Pickford's contract was structured with Paramount, a famous player's Lasky, in 1916. These people really shaped the industry all the way down on a granular level to, you know, profit sharing and block booking and tons of these issues that are maybe boring to everybody but an accountant, but they, you know, amount to millions of dollars. And so the minute I had the letters, I knew I had something that no one else had. And then just as I started digging through the primary source material, you know, there'd be the Dan, you know, nobody ever said this or darn, you know, the classic story was X. It turns out it didn't happen that way at all. It was Y. Over the course of the you know subsequent eight years, it was a, a constant onslaught of new and wonderful and interesting facts. So there was no aha moment where one particular truism turned out not to be true. It was just a constant drip of new knowledge. Since you you know you were working on this for such a long time, you, like you say, almost a decade, were you also still a, a practicing physician at that point? I was a physician, but I was disabled from working because, in an ER because of all the spine surgery. So by the time I started the Fairbanks book, I also had this other career as an entrepreneur, and I had formed a company called Faircode, yes, it was named after Fairbanks a little bit, in which we take physicians, often they're physicians who are now handicapped. If you've got hepatitis B, you can't work in the operating room. If if you've developed Parkinson's disease and have a tremor, you know, you, you, there are things that you, you can't be doing a spinal tap. We would take physicians and we would have them review the diagnosis and procedure codes that were being assigned by the hospital coders who are very skillful and knowledge, knowledgeable about the coding rules, but they don't know medicine. And we found that um, if you add doctors to the process and we you know, built databases, et cetera, to look at the assignment of the diagnosis-related group. It's called a DRG. It's the way hospitals are compensated for inpatient care, kind of on a flat rate instead of, you know, a per diem rate. Um, so if you have pneumonia, you, you're paid this much, but if it's pneumonia with complications, you're paid $1,000 more. If it's a pneumonitis, not a pneumonia, you're paid yet more. Um, and so coders weren't looking at the chart and going, oh, well, you know, this lady was from a nursing home and was subtunded. That pneumonia was very likely her aspirating stomach contents. And by having a doctor look at that chart and then sending a peer-to-peer -peer query, ultimately, company is now 21 years old and we've recovered. We've made hospitals get back money when they were erroneously overbilling, which is far rarer than you would think. But we've recovered about half a billion dollars for um, American hospitals, and we don't do it on a contingency basis. We, you know, then our incentives would be wrong. We just bill an hourly rate. It really helps the hospitals. It helps their quality reports. It pays for itself four times over. Every dollar they spend with us, they collect four. 
And so now we're national with about 150 doctors and a a very complex uh, online uh, database with a lot of clinical rules, and we're moving into AI, lots of other uh, arenas there. So I was making my living as a physician using a physician brain, but to build uh, systems and procedures and processes that would help hospitals get paid fairly. Uh, you know, if a surgeon nicks a vessel and they have to have, you know, a couple of blood transfusions after the procedure, the surgeon hates to document that it was a complication. They'll they'll bend over backwards to say it was a normal procedure. But, you know, if you've got a fellow doctor saying, well, you know, it looks like you, you, you nicked the radial artery there and you had to, you know, repair it and you gave two units of blood, that consumes resources in the hospital and the hospital should be paid for it. And all of this has nothing to do with silent films, except um, the fact that the business uh, thrived and succeeded put me in a position about eight years ago to finally form and fund this nonprofit, Film Preservation Society. And it is 99% just funded by me. We don't run major fundraisers. We do sell uh, our restorations as Blu-rays. So I like to say we lose money more slowly, which is our goal. Our goal is to get these films saved and out there because nitrate won't wait. You know, silent films were filmed on nitrate stock. That often doesn't last 100 years. and It starts to bubble and melt and then the image is gone forever. And uh, tons and tons of these treasures are sitting, in some cases, where they should be in nice, cool storage archives underground in Hamlin, Pennsylvania, or um, Culpeper, Virginia, where it used to be kind of a where they kept a lot of the government currency during World War II. Now they can use it to store film. But a lot of this stuff is just sitting in someone's garage and not temperature controlled and starting to rot. So our mission is to find and save. In this instance, we've been restoring a number of uh, Doug Fairbanks films, but also the one reel films that were made between 1908 and 1913 by a company called the Biograph, American Mutoscope and Biograph. And it was at this company that all those things I talked about where film learned to become cinema, it was happening under the oversight of a young early 30s guy by the name of D.W. Griffith. And Griffith's a name that, you know, ooh, boy, good luck raising money for D.W. Griffith because in 1915 he released a uh, film that was incredibly advanced and was game-changing for the world called The Birth of a Nation. The problem is it also was a film of its era made by a Southerner whose father was, you know, a Confederate soldier in the Civil War. And it has the racial point of view that just makes you cringe. And so Griffith, for all of his skill, Uh, and all he contributed to the world of cinema is kind of a hot potato now that no one wants to touch, which is a shame because these 450 or so one-reel films he made for Biograph in the years between 1908 and 1913, 
he had a very progressive worldview. Sometimes the former slave, you know, the the African-American character would turn out to be the hero in the story. The Native Americans were filmed very sympathetically. It wasn't cowboys and Indians uniformly where the Indians were the bad guys. Lots of times the white man was the bad guy. And he was telling stories, you know, about elderly workers with no protection and unions and just... It's as if you were watching Teddy Roosevelt's progressive worldview in these little 15-minute movies. But they're also the narrative of of how film became art. And uh, so our it's like we call it a 20-year project, is to save and gather up from sundry archives and reassemble um, all of these films. Now, All of the films from 1908, every single one is lost. And you say, how can you then save the 1908 films? Well, until 1912, you could not copyright film in the United States. Film was not a copyrightable entity, but photographs were. So the studios would produce these incredibly long strips of paper that essentially looked like a roll of film, except you couldn't shine light through it on which was every frame of the movie. And they would submit that for copyright. So we're digitally scanning those things and reassembling them, um, which can be a challenge. Sometimes the paper on the scanner was like wiggling all over the place. And sometimes it's not quite in focus. And sometimes they're just giving us the scenes in the order they were shot, not the final assembly order. But we are with the tremendous help and cooperation of the Library of Congress, scanning all of those films and scanning some of the uh, subsequent films where all of the nitrate material may be missing shots. So we're getting from the paper print the, the missing material. And we're going to, at the end of the day, have every film, unless they're totally lost, in its correct order with a projected at the correct speed with a piano score by an incredibly talented musician who does this routinely uh, by the name of Donald Soson. So there's sort of a uniformity of skill set in the application of the music because, you know, there's some organizations that are releasing some of these films, because Mary Pickford, for example, was at the Biograph Studio in those very early years. That's how she got her start. And so the, the Pickford Foundation also is interested in these biographs. It marries in them, but they release them with rock music. You know, that's an aesthetic choice. You know, this is America and you, you can do whatever you want. But uh, we choose to have scores composed that are era appropriate and would have been the sort of music that people would have heard in a Nickelodeon in 1911. So it it will be a major project where maybe 15% done with a lot of, of films sort of hanging out there. We've got them scanned, but they're not stabilized or they're stabilized, but they're not, you know, all the scratches haven't been digitally cleaned um, or they're, stabilized and cleaned and and we've had to create or in some cases historically research and find what the inner titles were and then we get them scored so uh, we've released 
three Blu-rays, and on each of them are, as additional features, are one or two Biograph short films. The first Blu-ray we released was called Too Many Kisses, and it was Harpo Marx's first appearance in the movies. It's perfect. Harpo doesn't talk. It's a Richard Dix comedy. William Powell is the bad guy, and Harpo Marx is essentially just acting like Harpo Marx with his costume and everything. And um, that has a Mary Pickford biograph on it. The second Blu-ray we released was with the cooperation of the Museum of Modern Art. We took some excellent restoration work that Rob Byrne of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival had done on the Three Musketeers, Doug Fairbanks's, the print that came off of his camera negative, which has since degenerated, but the fine grain positive uh, Rob Byrne worked with. And then some additional historical material turned up where we knew what the correct tints were and also that there had been a sort of a, I won't call it a hand coloring technique, but a special stencil colored technique called Hanschlegel, where D'Artagnan's horse was buttercup yellow and um, MoMA worked to put that back in. And we funded the score with Rodney Sauer and the Montalto Orchestra, five-piece orchestra. And so The Three Musketeers is finally being seen the way it was meant to be seen, not in a scratchy 16-millimeter print, but as pristine as you could uh, hope for. And that was released with a Mary Pickford biograph. And then our most recent release is a Doug Fairbanks double feature, two films that previously had been thought to be lost. We reassembled his second feature film called Double Trouble with some material from two reels out of a Brazilian archive and then five reels from the original camera negative and some fine grain positives that were at the Library of Congress and then a lot of, again, historic research to find the original intertitles, et cetera, et cetera. And the George Eastman House, or excuse me, it's now the George Eastman Museum, had about 15 years before found, had donated to them what had been a totally lost Doug Fairbanks film called Mr. Fix-It, which is a real charmer. And uh, they were kind enough to let us clean it up a little and put a score on it and release that as a double feature. And that Blu-ray also has a couple of biographs on it. You know, ultimately, they'll be, probably they won't have box sets or Blu-rays anymore by the time we're done. But ultimately, it will be available with an associated relational database. So somebody can say, I just want to see all the Lionel Barrymore movies. I want to see only films that had to do with Native Americans or only films that had to do with, you know, gangsters, modern uh, the very first gangster film ever made was made at Biograph in 1912. So I here's my, my one pitch. I urge, I beg people to go to www.filmpreservationsociety, that's all one word, .org, and look in our shop, and you can order any or all of those Blu-rays and books. My book, uh, my husband has a far more famous book on the Marx Brothers that's on there and signed by the authors. And Carrie Beecham has a 
very significant, important book called My First Time in Hollywood. And she donated uh, some of those to us. Anyway, there's, if you go on, you can support silent film preservation and actually get a chance to, to see what I've been babbling about. Well, you know, I think this gets at two interesting things that I want to touch on as well. The first is you talk about how laborious and how intensive it is to bring these projects to life. There are so many steps along the way. There's a lot of research that goes into it. There's a lot of evaluation and reevaluation and reevaluation. You know, some people might say, if they don't have a passion for it, they might say, well, what's the point? What, why is it important that we not only preserve these works, but preserve them in the way that they were originally intended? That is such a good question, and I'm so grateful to you for asking it, because before my father died in his 90s, you know, he said, why are you doing this? And I said, look, Dad, there are 700 people in the world that are going to be interested in this, and you know, 650 of them haven't been born yet. We have to save this history for future generations. If it would be terrible to say, yes, there were all these great Michelangelo paintings, but you know, we painted over that ceiling. And if we can save that which is just on the verge of crumbling away, if we can get there in time and bring it back, we have preserved a slice of history. First of all, these were popular entertainment, believe me. These are, you know, fun, good movies to watch, and you want to. You're never going to see a more charming and persuasive and moving actress than a young Mary Pickford. But pretend Mark Twain had written his life's work, and you've got Huckleberry Finn, but Chapter One is in London. And chapter two is in New York. And oh, by the way, the the words are scrambled. And uh, chapter three, we're not sure we think part of it's in Brazil, but part of it's in Russia. We're going to have to translate it back. So you want to put back Huck Finn so that you've got it as it was and as it should be. In fact, you this is the process. And the hardest part for me has been trying to find grace and patience in working with some of the archives. Some of them are just so fabulous and they've got limited resources and they're doing their best for you. Um, and sometimes you get in there and there's a proprietary, oh, this is, this is our stuff. <laughs> so we'll, we'll fix it and we'll do it. No, that looks too good. You know, those films had more scratches on them. Did they in 1909? Really? You know, in fact, if you watch Casablanca or go back 10 years earlier, Redheaded Woman with Jean Harlow, et cetera, et cetera, you know, those films looked really good. And you could put camera, uh, excuse me, film in a Pathé camera and you know, crank the handle on the, the camera. You would get film that looked as sharp as any movie you would make today. So what what has diminished these films is a number of things. Number one, the, the projection speed changed when sound came in. So, so if you were to see a silent film in a theater, they'd crank it. It looked fast. It looked funny. Um, time did some damage. You know, the costumes look different. What's, you know makeup. Oh, I don't get it. And then um, just the damage of time destroying the film 
and you get a dupe of a dupe of a dupe, you you're it's like looking through a lens of Vaseline. You know, you're not seeing the the beautiful work that was done. And so for my grandchildren, again, who may not care, uh, but somebody's grandchild is going to care. This generation is going to work to save this material before it's too late. And so that future generations can look back and draw inspiration. And sure, some of it, they're just figuring it out as they go along. Some of those 198 films are pretty rough sledding. You know, it's just, we're not all there yet. But boy, oh boy, by 1909, he's really cooking. And by 1912, his first masterpiece in a film that stands as a masterpiece even today was in 1909. And it was called A Corner in Wheat. And if you remember a Harrison Ford film called Witness, where he's hiding out from the bad guys, he's a a policeman who was trying to protect a child who witnessed a murder. He's hiding out in the Amish country in the barns. And in the end, the villain is uh, killed by being sort of drowned in wheat. You know, he's just, you've got all the wheat's coming down on him and all you see is that hand coming out. Well, that was drawn directly from what D.W. Griffith did in 1909 when the greedy capitalist who had cornered the wheat market and was making it hard for poor people to afford to buy bread in the end was hoist by his own petard or drowned in his own wheat supply. You know, they're not just historical curiosities. There, There are tremendous works of art, even that early, that are there. Some I, I, There are always more urgent problems. I know just like when we sent men to the moon, people were saying, well, we've got problems here on Earth. The answer is, yeah, yeah. But somebody's got to figure out how to get the rocket to another planet because maybe 100 years from now, we'll need to colonize. There's There's always something that's more immediately urgent than in saving and preserving art. And yet... If somebody doesn't do it, we're all going to lose a little piece of our souls. And we may never even know that we lost it. But um, we may never have known it was there, but it was there. And we're going to try and be the ones to save it. We, and believe me, I'm sounding like Superman myself, you know, all of these other uh, tremendously wonderful archives, um, these people who are working at largely thankless jobs, they're understaffed, they're overworked, they're underfunded, and yet they have this grand passion as well, and they're devoting their lives to to working and saving this material. I wonder if you can talk a little bit, and I don't, I don't know how much detail you can provide, but I'm curious about how technology is aiding in your preservation efforts, because I kind of feel like, you know, we're moving at such a fast pace that there has to be something out there that's helping you uh, in, in the great work that you're doing. And I know that you've also, like the, the society has also advanced some technology yourselves, right? Well, we we did in the uh, early development of software to scan the paper prints. There had been some software written. We funded some additional improvements on that software, but then we funded a guy to go spend a year at the Library of Congress and, and try and actually scan the paper prints and use the software tool. 
that LOC had asked us to help fund and support. And he discovered an off-the-shelf product from Adobe, did the job better. So I won't name the tool. And, you know, since then, we've moved ahead with other software vendors. The, the wonderful thing is a computer can look and if the, you know, the wallpaper behind the heroine looks the same in every frame and then there's a big scratch on one frame, the computer knows ah, that scratch doesn't belong there and it replaces the scratch with the wallpaper from the frame before the frame after. But if you're angry and you're waving a spoon around, then that computer doesn't necessarily know if that spoon is a scratch or a blot on the film, or is that supposed to be there? And so we spend a lot of time after the computer has sort of cleaned things up, going back and saying, oh, the policeman lost the buttons on his shirt. You know, computer thought those were bad, and then manually putting them back in. So there's a, a process, you'll, you'll be speaking um, after me with uh, Ben uh, Salovey, who is one of our brilliant young film restorers, and he will explain with far more elegance and precision than I um, which tools we're using and which tools we're migrating to, etc. But I'm the one who, because I cost nothing and I don't have the important skill set that um, our team has, I'm the one that does the, the quality control, the QC, and sits there frame by frame and goes, oh, suddenly somebody's arm is translucent because the computer thought it was didn't belong there. So whenever people move fast, the, the computer has you know, a problem. Somebody about 15 years ago did a restoration of a Gloria Swanson Rudolph Valentino film called Beyond the Rocks, and they demonstrated in the extra material how there was a scene of a village and then there was a dog that ran across the street. The computer thought the dog was, you know, a blotch, a spot, and, and digitally removed it. And if you don't know, if you're not looking carefully that the dog was there, you, you can't know to put the dog back. So we're trying to make the film as good as it was, but not lose things in that process. And that's a real careful tightrope to walk because you could just run it through the program. Oh, okay, it took out all the scratches, but that's not, that's not the real work of it. And there's also a whole technical arena that I'm not discussing, which deals with the scanning of the actual 35 millimeter film we have working with us an organization called Lobster Films, Blackhawk Films in um, Burbank, although they're based out of Paris. Serge Bromberg, a gentleman who, who owns the RKO collection uh, for Europe. Uh, you want to see King Kong, you talk to Serge. They know if a film is scratched, you know, they can do something called wet gate scanning, where the, the film is then scanned under a thin layer of water. And just like a scratch on a watch glass, if you're underwater, you don't see those scratches. You know, the water kind of fills it in. That's what we they can do for film. And then that is something kind of manually that you do so that uh, you don't have to have the computer remove the scratches. You're kind of catching them uh, in the process of the scanning. 
So there's tons and tons of elegant and nuanced technical stuff. I'm probably muffing it up in my description. And right now, every uh, talented film preservationist is pulling out their hair going, well, what do you do? She's the crazy old lady who comes up with the money. You know, you need that person too. I mean, you need the person who who says, this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to find the money for it, even if I have to sell my china, which I did. And, you know, we're, we're getting there. And may I say, uh, you are a, an amazingly good listener. You're just letting me blather. And that is a skill set in itself. Well, no, I think this is also fascinating. And, you know, I, I think the work that you're doing is so important. And it always surprises me a little bit. I, I mean, I'm in my 40s. I, I love film. I've always been a film fan. And whenever I speak to people, I almost forget that there's an entire generation that doesn't remember anything beyond the year 2000. Like if it's older than 1999, they don't know about it. They, it doesn't exist. Yeah. When they refer to that as the turn of the century in my heart. Yeah. And and to me, it's always so fascinating because I have these conversations and it seems like I have them more and more often now where, you know, you talk, we talk to creatives and we talk to people that are, you know, they have a passion for film and, they they teach and, and there's always this conversation like, well, you know, this, there's more than just what you saw last week. Like this actually has a history that goes back, not just the nineties or the seventies or the fifties, it goes back to the twenties or even earlier than that. And it's like, well, if, if it was made before 1990, I don't, I don't know of it. And why is it important to know about this? There, there are kids who they don't watch black and white. No, exactly. Uh, they miss so much, you know, Billy Wilder. I mean, you just think of all of the the wonderful films. And I will every so often, you know, find some youngster and say, oh, you know, I saw a really old one. Uh, it was um, Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. To me, that's kind of modern. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. They're going to find them eventually. And all I can say is people watch Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> they're, they really, you know, they're classic for a reason. So, you know, after a while, time gets kind of tight. You start saying, uh, how many more years do I have to be Copus Menace um, and to, to be able to direct and have the will to make all this stuff happen? And when you're down to saying, you know, I'm probably down to the last 20 years, maybe the last 10, you start to pick and choose more carefully than when you're 25 and the world is your oyster and it's all ahead of you. I don't envy the 25-year-olds. We all have the same 365 days to be 21. We just had them at different times. Do you ever kind of wish that you had started this earlier in your life? No, uh, for several reasons. If I had gone into this field, I would never have been in a position where I could fund this kind of work. I would have been like all the other nice people working in archives. So the fact that I had these other two careers, both as a as a clinician at Johns Hopkins and in the trauma rooms, and then subsequently as an administrative kind of person and and ultimately, you know, an entrepreneur, that gave me 
a bunch of skill sets that you don't always see in the film restoration world, and yet you need, like, you know, business sense, knowing where to direct the money and how and, and you know, how not to spend it if you don't have it. These are skill sets I would not have had had I not built a business. I, you know, I wish I'd had the luxury if I, you know, if I was born as Paris Hilton and had all the money I wanted. Yes, then I would have been able to to start the saving work earlier. On the other hand, we wouldn't have had all the technologic tools earlier. We just it, you would be doing you know film restoration by by not even scanning. You would just be copying the film and trying to create a new clean negative, etc. And so I'm lucky to live in the era I live in. Just like when I was writing a biography on Fairbanks, it was hard because everybody who knew him was dead. And I was down to interviewing you know, grandchildren of the people who knew him, who, by the way, had very good anecdotes. But I also had access uh, digitally to all of the newspapers and all of the trade papers where I could sit at my desk and just scan through them and read them. And that would not have been available to me even 20 years before. You know, there's there's strengths and value and virtues in a number of different uh, years. I wish I'd started collecting posters in the 60s or 70s, but you know, I didn't discover that you could buy old silent film posters till 1993. What are the major challenges that the uh, Film Preservation Society and other organizations that are doing the same similar sort of work, what are the major challenges that you guys are facing now? To me, the greatest challenge is um, working between the different archives uh, and between the different organizations where people think they have ownership of this material. So if some of the shots are at the BFI, British Film Institute, and some of the shots are down in Brazil, it may take years. And in fact, it did take years to get the two reels of Double Trouble out of Brazil. First, it was like, ah, oh, we've got the World Cup going on, you know, and then we waited the World Cup was over, and then, you know, the guy in charge, his sweater is on his chair at the desk, but he's never actually at his desk, as long as the sweater's on the chair, you know, he collects his paycheck. Finally, Library of Congress had to kind of push very hard in terms of, well, let's put the film in a diplomatic bag, you know, and just get it across the border, um, because there was just a lot of roadblocks put up. I don't know if people needed their palms greased more or what. Um, then you'll get an American archive and you're sitting there going, I will pay for this. Just, just please. And I'll, I'll pay for the shipping of the film. Just ship the film to, to our labs and we will scan and save your film for you. Well, but the people, you know, in, in the shipping department where, the archive is underground, you know, they're very busy. And okay. And then of course, COVID didn't help. Two years of people not being at work, not being able to go in and, and send you a reel of film really was, was a challenge. And by the way, one of the Brazilian archives burned to the ground this past year. Yep. All that film gone. And, uh, 
you know, you just have got you're desperate to try and save it in time, desperate. But my favorite part of it is where you go up to the San Fernando Valley and you know you you meet a guy in a storage locker and he's got you know just thousands of reels of film and he hands you seven reels you know here they are and you you, you pay them off and suddenly you've got some missing film that walked away from, you know, MoMA back in 1930 or somebody wanted to make a flicker flashback in the forties and they never returned the film after they cut it out. And you just, there's this whole underworld of collectors and God bless them. They've saved stuff from being destroyed, even though what they were doing was technically illegal. You know, the studios said these films belong to us. The collectors were the only ones saving them. There's there's highs and lows in this. And the hardest part is the politics. You'd think money would smooth anything over. Look, I'll pay for this. Yeah. No, no, no. Someone is owes somebody something first. Or in one instance, we had, um, we helped Serge Bromberg, who, whose organization is in Paris, and he needed an American 501c3 to do a grant proposal through so he could be awarded the grant. Well, he was awarded a marvelous grant that came through us and then directly to him from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association to save a film uh, called Tollable David. Wonderful, wonderful film, 1921, very um, historic. And the gorgeous copy of the film is in a certain archive, and he had the money. And then the archive said, well, but we don't want Hollywood Foreign Press. You know, his, the name would be on the print that Hollywood Foreign Press funded the the restoration. And, you know, the Hollywood Foreign Press is not sufficiently blended. You know, it's sort of all white people from Paris or something. And so they they no longer give out the Golden Globes and, and you know, they're politically kind of poisoned. And so, boop, you know, he, he didn't get to save that film. He had to take that money and save some other film. And that's just politics. And I have no patience for politics. I'm sure I'm hanging myself by saying this, you know, but I was an ER doc. I'm used to life and death stuff. You don't have time for nonsense. If you've never seen a silent film and you want to kind of get your toes wet and kind of find out a little bit more, where would you recommend somebody to, to start? I would start with a movie that Charlie Chaplin made in 1921 called The Kid with Jackie Coogan or The Gold Rush in 1925 or a Buster Keaton movie called The General which is about a train, a train chase during the Civil War. Any of those films would be wonderful entrees to silent film and silent comedy. You, know, you could see Keaton's Our Hospitality or The Navigator. If you have younger children, Mary Pickford movies can, can be real winners. It's funny, I taught American silent film in Maryland at Towson University for a couple of years. And I would show, you know, The Mark of Sorrow with Doug Fairbanks. And I showed all the classic silent films, including Birth of a Nation. But at the end of the year, their favorite 
was a Mary Pickford um, movie called Poor Little Rich Girl. And it's sort of like The Wizard of Oz. You know, it has a fantasy sequence where she's unconscious and and people are in, you know, animal costumes. And, and you have to approach that movie and all of these movies with the same kind of open heart. You know, before you're post-ironic, you have to be ironic. And before you're ironic, you have to just be open-hearted. And so... Imagine yourself when you were four years old seeing The Wizard of Oz on your mom's lap for the first time. You know, that absolute, non-cynical, non-snarky, absorbing of the story and the magic of the tale. If you approach those films this way, because that's how people were approaching them in 1910, just as this magical uh, lyrical experience in this other world, you will be hooked forever, I think. So start with the comedies, and then from there we can take you in directions of adventure. Um, again, Marco Zorro, Three Musketeers, Robin Hood. There are just some wonderful, wonderful films out there. And you please, uh, you know, try not to get the YouTube dupes. I mean, there's some good versions on YouTube. There's a very good copy of The General that I'm grabbing some screenshots for for a talk I'm giving tomorrow. But for the most part, if you're watching on YouTube, you're watching somebody's stolen work. Somebody has invested a lot in restoring a film and then somebody rips the Blu-ray and throws it up on YouTube. That hurts. <laughs> it's, it's worse than, you know, grabbing a candy bar from a checkout line at a grocery store. I mean, you're, you're People don't think of it as major theft, but it's stealing. So, uh, you know, rent it from Amazon or buy the Blu-ray and uh, you'll, you'll never regret it. And that was our conversation with Tracy Gossel. You can find out more about the great work being done by the Film Preservation Society on their website at filmpreservationsociety.org. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.